0: Greetings, Raised Community Brent coming in live with a unique episode today. We've got a father, daughter, duo. Welcome, Fred Van Sickle, Vice President for Alumni Affairs and Development at Cornell University, and Catherine Van Sickle, who is Director of Major Gifts and Strategic Engagement at the Chapin School in New York City and host of the Development Debrief, which you can find on the Evertrue Studio Podcast Network. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It it used used to be father,
1: daughter. Now it's daughter, father. I, I, I always come after Catherine these days. People say, Are you Catherine's father? <laughs> yeah, I am. And I'm proud of it.
0: I think she's got you on the influencer brand building side of things. Totally.
1: Sure. She has crushed me. Not that it was ever an aspiration, mind you.
0: Well, let's uh let's talk about the uh, the career path and uh you know how things have aligned the last. Few years in particular, but I'll I'll start with you, uh, Fred. I actually would love to know just a little bit more about your own your own college journey. In fact, I mean, you know, where were you? What was the consideration? And and then ultimately, tell me about your own your own choice.
1: Yeah. Well, I grew up in a small town in Illinois, and uh, my father and my grandfather went to Lake Forest College, uh, which is about uh, four hours from Canton. And a totally different cosmopolitan, upper class, uh, suburban world from a small rural town. And it was—it's a great uh, small liberal arts college. So I went there, and and I was experienced and exposed to a lot of things I'd never seen. It was very eye opening. It's a great liberal arts education, great faculty, um, smart peers from from all over. And it was a very formative experience. And um, I graduated in 1983. Um, I thought maybe I'd want to be a lawyer, but that didn't work out. And so I was casting about for something to do. And I happened to know uh, people in the development office at Lake Forest. And they said, well, we need some temporary help. Can you run student uh, calling and do some research? So I did that. And I started, I think it was the January after... I graduated and I only did it for a few months. And I started doing that. This is pretty interesting. And, and they didn't know if they had anything for me. And so I, I, I went to the Chronicle of Higher Education. It's very quaint, but all the jobs that one could find were in a paper form in those days. You go to the Chronicle of Education, you go to the back and you look at all the job applications. And I applied to a lot of jobs and got a job as a researcher at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And I had never been in Connecticut. And my wife and I got married. Uh, We got in a car and uh, we drove to Connecticut and started, you know, my real career started at at Wesleyan. And it's been a great journey ever since.
0: Where did you get the bravery? Because as a fellow uh, small town Midwesterner, you know, one doesn't necessarily think to just jump in a car and drive to Connecticut. I mean, what?
1: (laughs) Uh, You know. It really starts with my dad. Everywhere we went, we went to a college campus. And so somehow that inculcated in me about the power and the beauty of these places. And so I, I sort of had this curiosity. Um, and we'd been, I'd traveled to the, you know, to New York and, and Boston a couple of times. It's like, well, this sounds great. This sounds wonderful. So um, and my wife was game and we just did it.
0: So tell me about research at Wesleyan University. What's the uh, <laughs> oh what was my the gosh. tech pack
1: that Oh they my equipped gosh. You? Yeah. Read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal every morning and look for
0: Wesleyan. <laughs> I think Williams that the- that strategy still plays. I mean, here we are in 2022. I think that would still be but, good.
1: Yeah, track. but not in paper versions. Um, or or town and country and um and that's where I you know had my first computer. I mean, this is hard for you guys to believe, but there was a computer on my desk, which was pretty amazing. Um, And, and the other thing that was really interesting was we come and the, the person who ran research was rather brilliant. There was a printout every day, anything that changed in the system, there was a huge stack of, um, I don't know what you call it, that, that rolling paper. And we, look at it and look any any change in addresses any change in anything and we'd look and see what had happened and and we had a library full of you know who's who and different directories so it was a very different very different world it was not an it was not an electronic process let's put it that way
0: somewhere between getting in the car and getting a computer catherine likely enters the picture here i have to ask catherine what were some of your favorite or or early memories when you think about your own kind of uh, you know your college experience started at at birth basically so kind of when <laughs> when do you start to recall some of those memories?
2: When we were living in Lake Forest, when we returned to Lake Forest College, I have so many memories of playing on campus, riding my bike, all over the place, like running into students, having students as babysitters was really fun um, playing with all of the faculty's kids that those memories are pretty, pretty strong.
1: Do yeah, the upside of moving to a very expensive suburb, having lost a lot of money on your house in Princeton was we lived in a college house. So we literally lived on campus and we took the kids yeah. to games to home. I and mean, they did, you know, they sort of, they lived on, you know, we lived on campus
2: and when I would have friends drop me off, they would say, I didn't even know this existed. Where are we? <laughs> it was this little enclave tucked away that it was like this, uh, another world, you know?
0: And it's one thing to sort of be immersed in that environment. It's another thing to kind of actually know what your dad does. So when did you start to uh, connect the dots on the uh, the profession being a thing?
2: Well, I would say I enjoyed as I got a little bit older, walking around campus and seeing that people knew him, and starting to meet people. And I was always—I've always been curious, and so that was fun to start connecting the dots. In oh that my
1: way. gosh! Oh, can you see this? Oh, you <laughs> yeah. have a little girl. This is me in my office at Lake Forest College with the Forester head on, and that's Catherine, little Catherine. <laughs> love that. and shredded love dollars that. by the way
2: <laughs> but that was the thing was we literally lived a three-minute walk from his office like I would just run into his office every day at the end of school like it was an extension of our house in a way so
1: I don't remember it quite that way but <laughs> it certainly was that very accessible
2: Well, I just remember being, I mean, like, I don't know that I've ever been in the office that you're even sitting in right now, but like, I just knew it was so familiar. Um, And I found it fun.
0: Well, I'm glad we're having this conversation. So you two can work through those uh, conflicting memories. (laughs) Um, But, uh, and so I imagine you were, you were sort of at some of the events or, you know, just sort of the intersection it sounds like of your, your childhood and and advancement were even more uniquely tied given the on-campus sort of housing experience, which is pretty rare. Yeah, very rare.
2: Well, so to go back to your question, I think when I really connected the dots was when we went to Europe. What, what year was that? Oh five?
1: That was the two fiftieth of Columbia. It's, it's, it's uh, it was 06. It was 06.
2: 06. Yeah. So at that time,
1: forty seventeen fifty six. Yes. I think, right. Is it 1756? Yeah. I, yes.
2: Yeah.
1: I can tell you 1865 easily today.
2: Uh, yeah. So th- that was, I was old enough to see, to make the connections and I, that I think that was the first time I can remember thinking this this is really cool and I'd like to try this well,
1: and we were I'm... at the British Museum we we're having a very fancy we had the entire British Museum and we were doing this uh sesquicent, uh, the two fiftieth thing and we had this fancy event and she met a she met a lady <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's true
1: Lady Sainsbury and she helped at the front desk it was very um formative.
0: And you had a, uh, yeah, just to, to put that in context, um, Fred, you spent 11, almost 12 years at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, through that experience, and I'm sure a, a campaign or, or two uh, during that time, um, what, what stood out for you? And, and honestly, I'm, I am curious, you know, moving your family, Happens in the sector, right? I mean, oftentimes, yeah. you know, career advancement requires pretty material geographic moves, and you know that's sort of never easy. Um, obviously, you know, relative to other jobs, at least you're sort of dropped into a new community, and you probably have you know more friends by the end of your first week than you know than you might commonly be able to find in other careers. But but was that a was that a hard decision? And and how do you think about moves like the one? back to New York City, very different than the uh, bucolic scene we were hearing about yeah. in Lake Forest.
1: Well, they're always hard decisions. And I, I'm really lucky. I have my partner in life. I mean, she's Susan is always very supportive. Um, and we, um, you know, the, the hardest, the hardest choice was. So it was. When we were married, it was Wesleyan. And then I went to Harvard and did a, did a master's. And then we went to Princeton and we loved Princeton. And then I got a chance to go back to my alma mater. And then my mentor, Susan Fagan, whom I worked for as a graduate student recruited me to Michigan and I got to Michigan and the president left within months. Susan was leaving within months and we really liked Ann Arbor. And Susan said, or I even said, I'm coming with you to Columbia. And so, <laughs> um, we did it it was hard we were only in ann arbor for a year and my wife uh, convinced me that we should live in princeton so it was easy we moved back to princeton and i commuted for 12 years which i can't i now look back on and i don't know how i ever did it but i did um but it was great for our family but those decisions are hard and but it's not family, hard. i think the family you know there are moments when I were, it, it, you know, it had its moments for the kids. I think it was hard sometimes.
0: What's your uh, recollection of that uh, move to Princeton, Catherine?
2: Looking back, I, I'm so grateful that I went to Princeton High School. I think I got an amazing education. I, I love, I'm so grateful that I had that time there. I, but And it was hard, but I actually think that the moving really forced me to build resilience early. And so going to college wasn't that big of a deal for me. I had made new friends several times. So I, I sort of felt like I had a leg up over the peers who had lived in the same house their whole life. So I wouldn't change it.
0: And as you approached your own college search uh, in high school... You were uh, probably as well-informed as just about anybody uh, at the age of 16, 17 could be. Um, But with that knowledge could, uh, I don't know, it could either create clarity or the sky's the limit. You know, the world is my oyster. I mean, how did you, how did you think about your own search and and how'd you land at Trinity?
2: It was fun. I think the tradition of, stopping at college campuses continues. It'll be interesting to see if it continues with our kids, but I had seen a lot of places. And I think with that experience, I knew that I wanted a small place. And it's interesting as we talk today about online versus in-person sense of place was really important to me. And so when we got onto Trinity's campus, I just fell in love with the architecture and the feeling and the New England, you know, of course I wanted a place with a strong, um, all around education. And I wanted a place where I could, I think I was pretty sure I wanted liberal arts. Um, but the ultimate decision was really about that feeling. And I know there are so many people that aren't able to, that step onto the campus for the first time when they go to school. So, I'm lucky that I had that opportunity, um, but I knew I wanted small. I knew that I wanted um, liberal arts and I just, I fell in love with the new England Gothic.
1: Well, and you were a rower and you recruited as a rower.
2: Well, I wasn't going to mention that cause I didn't make it all four years, but yeah, okay.
1: I
0: wanted to row. It's
1: part of the story.
2: Yeah. I was a, a D three uh, recruit and did that for a year. But then I got into an acapella group and there just was no competition between the two. And I couldn't do both.
1: And she's also, Brent, she's joined the, they have the board of trustees at, at Trinity and they have a board of fellows and she's joined the board of fellows there. We're very proud of her.
0: I want to talk more about that while also sharing my greatest regret. I mean, I did do football all four years in college, um, yeah. at the expense of just, uh, having such deep acapella aspirations i can't really even before, so and then you know glee came out and it, it further like twisted the knife and uh we we did recently have our 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 first um team retreat since we've brought these different companies together and, uh, and then i lost my voice so i couldn't even do karaoke at the team karaoke <laughs> it's just been one thing after another but uh So my understanding is at Trinity, in addition to settling in on the acapella team, you didn't waste much time in getting connected with the uh, the advancement shop. And and they looked at you and said, hey, this first year student has 18 years of advancement experience. We should try to get her. uh,
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I I thought I want to do something similar, but I want to do my own thing. So I actually thought that I wanted to do admissions and I was one of the student ambassadors for the admissions office and I gave tours. And so I'm not exactly sure how it works, but I think if you're in that group, you're automatically invited to all of like the student leader events and things like that. So what ended up happening was... The advancement office started calling me for the development tours, like the trustee kids or thing. So, sort of the word got out that they could call me and I would drop whatever I was doing. And then eventually, it was presentable. <laughs> I tried on a Friday morning. Um, but that then got me to get to know them. And then they said, Would you consider helping with reunion? And I did that and had a ball. So, it just everything grew off of each other. And continue to build.
0: And ultimately led you uh, to have a word on your resume that is relatively uncommon, but maybe should be more common, which is apprenticeship. Uh, y- you had the opportunity to join your alma mater waiting. And one of the, the lines really struck me. Uh, you were charged to build a pipeline of cold and unengaged alumni for the college. It just sounded like a pretty, pretty dark <laughs> corner of the advancement world, but probably a good place to cut your teeth. So tell me about those those cold and unengaged alumni and what stands out.
2: I'm glad you picked up on the little bit of drama that I put onto my resume. <laughs>
0: da, da, da.
2: <laughs> well, even though that does sound a little bit dramatic, it is accurate. So every you know this with the DxO program, every school has that group of people that they've called again and again and again and again. They're likely philanthropic other places, but somewhere along the way that Trinity fell off for them. And they thought, let's try a different angle. Let's try a recent graduate who is not going to ask. So, my charge was go learn th- about their passions, find out what they think of the school,, um, get a sense of who they are and where you might plug them in, and then report back. And that lasted for about two months until I was like, I want to ask. they're they're dying for me to ask. They're ready. they w-. I waited I wait. I got through six months of that, and um, I learned a lot that there were a lot of, really great prospects who just hadn't had that connection and it was just taking the time um and the other thing i had was a blog and i realized that was kind of the first iteration of the dev debrief (laughs) i think it might still be on the interwebs but
0: what is the what do you think the difference maker was i mean my guess is right i mean these are they'd been getting the marketing for years right they'd been getting the invitations they'd been on the same list as everybody else were unresponsive so what what were the lessons learned
2: all of my outreach the whole conversation everything was designed and i hate to say designed because it wasn't like a manipulative thing it was just it was about them it was all just about them. And I remember people initially saying like, tell them that you'll give them a report on the college. And I remember thinking that felt weird. And so I, I didn't do that. And I think what they're used to getting is I'm going to be in your city. Let Do you want to meet for me to give you a report and tell you what's going on? They, they don't, why should they care if they're not plugged in anyway? So my outreach was, I want to hear your story. I want to hear how you landed to where you are today. I want to hear about how Trinity might have impacted your professional journey or not. And I think, you know, this Brent people like to talk about themselves and they were maybe intrigued or flattered by that outreach. So it, it was a different angle. I mean, Trinity was smart. It was Gretchen Orscheid who said, let's try this.
0: I wish you would have made it a podcast called Cold Unengaged Alumni and just like. <laughs> Unfiltered, you know,
1: It'd be like a a, a noir uh, podcast.
0: <laughs> but I mean, I, honestly, I would all you reference the DXO program. Our approach is almost the opposite, which is look. There's so many like amazing prospects that are engaged, that are giving, that aren't you know having that sort of human to human connection. And so let's focus on those. Whereas you know going to that part of of I feel like. You know, folks do the the research, the analysis, and and might come up to the con- conclusion of like that, that cold, unengaged group. Actually, the best thing to do is completely ignore them because we have limited time and resources, and we have to focus on elevating the experience for people that are you know at least somewhat warm. And so it's 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 fascinating to know that even in that corner uh, of the community, there was untapped potential. And I think it's a good yeah. reminder of. of you know, what you might see on a RFM score or, you know, an analysis or a research poll um, is only going to be the the most surface level. Um, And and I think that's the rub with this whole sector is, is how do you, how do you do that at scale um, so that we're not leaving people behind?
2: And the, the important caveat is they were all very high capacity. Good point. But yes, I, I hear what you're saying. And I do think if I were to look at one of those graphics today, I would say, yeah, let's ignore that corner. Let's let's look at a different corner. Um so it's an interesting point.
0: Fred, how do you think about that in the context of such a you know incredibly engaged community um that you have at Cornell? Uh, you know, not everybody, rah-rah, but but more than most. Um yeah. And at the same time, you know, you've had to navigate that balance of engagement, broad based engagement versus driving, you know, eight, nine figure gifts at the top of the pyramid that are ultimately going to create the transformation that you've been chartered to to deliver by way of philanthropy. And, And I think that's one of the most really challenging aspects of advancement leadership is in a lot of markets, you know, as a leader, you would come in and say, okay, who's my who's my core persona here? Who's my target audience? And let's just really zoom in on that one audience and do everything we can for that ideal customer profile. And I think Advancement's one of the spaces where from the youngest to the oldest, from the richest to the least wealthy and everything in between in your backyard and every corner of the world, your audience is sort of everyone, which is is a unique challenge relative to most other sectors.
1: We have like 285,000 alumni we can reach around the world. And we only work with just a small proportion as, as, uh, as, I hate to say managed prospects. That sounds so awful. As, as people we actually interact with in a person to person way. And then we've got many, many volunteers. And um, we just know that there are just just literally thousands and thousands of extraordinary people that we don't have a personal relationship with. One thing that we've done that we're very excited about is we uh, consolidated sort of a, a, a set of uh, university office and uh, uh, college people working in discovery. We had about four of, four of them. And we decided during COVID to bring them all together. And we created, it's not... It's never fully staffed, it seems, but we have 11 positions to do discovery work. And so these tend to be young people, and they're out looking for great folks to engage. And what we've seen in the first two years is the the regular staff does discovery work on their own, looking for prospects. And that would be about a 1,000 a year. But adding this staff, we've doubled it to 2,000 a year. So we're really working hard at this. Uh, and I think the challenge is, it is an arms race we can never win. There are so many people in our constituencies and our, our um, budgeteers and decision makers will never give us all the, the resources we need to reach out to all the potential people.
0: Um, Without putting you on the spot too much, nor inviting you to say something you might later regret, um, why? like there are a lot of markets and you have board members and you know trustees who if this were their business would say well how many profitable leads might be out there and let's just hire that many sales professionals until it's no longer profitable to do so and so that might mean if we did the math that Cornell could have 1000 development officers carrying portfolios, for example, and that might sound crazy, but I bet if we did the work, it, it actually might be supportable based on the data. Um, the fight for resources, right? I mean, there, there are very few, uh, you know, there are basically two, maybe three primary revenue generating centers for a university. Tuition, one that we know is sort of tapped out, at least, um, you know, at a national level. Research to a certain degree, commercialization, maybe some athletics, but advancement like being the other huh? well, you know, that brown Cornell homecoming game doesn't there you go. Sp- there you go. help help keep the lights on. But but Catherine, what what's your perspective on just the, the fight for resources in the sector um based on the leaders you've gotten to know? Well, you know, I
2: I'm thinking a lot of different things right now. I'm thinking that funder, I'm biased. I'm a frontline fundraiser. So I'm always going to say that that's a solution, but it means that the results need to be on the board. And I think often we know it takes a year to get up to speed. You get up to speed and then you leave. And I think that's the bigger issue. I think having the staff and the talent is the answer, but that's with, the result of the person staying and committing. And I think that's actually a really interesting conversation right now is giving people that $10,000 or even $5,000 raise and having them stay for another two years versus leave and start over. I think that's an area where leaders really need to be thinking. Because I'm seeing organic.
0: I could point you to a whole bunch of Harvard Business Review articles that say it's not about extrinsic motivation like the extra $5,000. It's all about intrinsic and mission and purpose and culture. And we over rotate on the extra $5,000. But, you know, you've got a lot of friends in the space and you've worked in the space and, you know, maybe those articles are wrong. Maybe sometimes it's just that extra $5,000 that can make the difference.
2: I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think, too, that sometimes it is just time to leave. I think that's one of our industry issues, though, is that people come up against brick walls more than they need to. I think there are a few cases that can be pointed to where someone truly was able to grow within an organization. But we're a relationship business, so it's silly. I mean, you heard our story. We moved around, but it wasn't every two years. We moved around every five to seven Um, I think it's necessary, but not at the rate that people are moving in. So sorry to change subjects here, but I just think that's more of the root of your question.
0: Well, look, I mean, ultimately a lot of the practices that we're trying to suggest as it relates to building healthy lifelong donor relationships are the same characteristics that our teammates want too, right? I mean, what is the you know, everybody gets recruited, right? There's all the recruitment and all the attention paid at the recruitment and getting somebody to come on board. And then sort of what is that customer experience or the employee experience is similar to, you know, as a donor, the ask is made, i make the gift. Well, then what happens? Cause that's really the start uh, of the relationship. I'm curious, Fred, I'm sure you've worked with people who have been, you know, lifelong committed to a given institution and you've worked with people that have been six months and on to the next thing and everything in between. and and I wonder if you've seen patterns emerge or or if you've learned anything around you know what what is the difference between somebody that decides to really dig in and commit and grow um, versus you know on to the next thing?
1: I think the environment has changed enormously. One of the things I would say about resources, even if I was given an extra $50 million, I don't know how I'd fill all those jobs. I have 67 openings at Cornell right now. We are in a totally different world. And maybe this is just a moment, but we're in a totally different world in terms of vacancies. And then also generationally, we're in a totally different world where our young colleagues would like to be promoted quickly rapidly and we are uh, rather lumbering organizations we are not organized to support that Cornell has changed a lot Cornell was built on uh, a few generations of, of people many of them Cornellians who spent an entire career at Cornell and I still have some of those colleagues and they're they are you know they're they're treasures but I don't think that's going to happen again People who basically spend 30 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years working for an institution. So, the challenge now, and we spend, you know, when I think about changes in my work as a leader, the focus on, on culture and talent uh, has just grown and grown. And um, it's very important. It's very hard. Uh, it's very hard to achieve the results that you want in big, complicated organizations. And I fear that it's going to be that much harder because the proportion of people who are never really in the office together. um, And I'm going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm of a different generation than you, Brent. I know your company approaches this differently, but I really believe that people need to spend time together, um, you know, more than infrequently to, to build culture, but that's not always the direction that, that the generations are going. So this is a huge, a huge issue. And I think, you know, institutions have to demonstrate to employees that, that this is a place where you want to work, that you believe you can do your best work here. Um, and that is not easy to do. And it's not, and again, I don't think it's for lack of trying, but I do think there's a level of impatience um, that's that's um, higher than, than I recall in the past. I mean, I've been in the business for, I guess it'll be almost 40 years, long time. It's different.
0: I wanted to just share. I, I I have carved out a bit of a reputation around remote work and advancement and all these things. I, I want to acknowledge that I was like the biggest in-office person <laughs> ever. Like the Friday happy hours of the Barking Crab in Boston, and just like bonding and the like go for an impromptu walk, get a coffee. Like so, I. It's not like I I came to this conclusion always, you know, hoping that this would be the future. It's really been a journey um, for me yeah. over the last 10 years. And, and as I sit here now, and I just did an onboarding meeting with, with four new teammates of ours yesterday, one was in Tallahassee. One was in, uh, I'm going to call it Tennessee, might've been Georgia. One was in We won't Chicago. Tell and and i'm i'm forgetting you know where where the fourth uh, teammate was but what has been really amazing for me and I, and i wonder if it helps compensate for the concern that you were just sharing is being able to find people that are have the skills and the genuine passion for our work irrespective of whether they happen to live within 30 miles or so of downtown boston yeah. has been incredibly liberating for me. And then I look at, at organizations like Cornell, the number one employer of Cornell University graduates is Google. Over 2,000 Cornell alumni work at Google. And the number one location for those Cornell grads who work at Google is in Northern California. 1,000 Cornell grads work at Google in Northern California. That is a long way from Ithaca, having... Travel to Ithaca by bus. Um, and I don't know if one can travel there by plane. I, I do think about yes,
1: you can, absolutely.
0: Oh well, you know, good. We're we're, we're progressing. Well, Those are Air? rumors
1: that are unhelpful. That
0: Cape, Cape Air seasonally. Um United so, Delta. <laughs> You've heard of them. I you know we digress In the Ithaca <laughs> international airport. What I would international I to say is is You know, might might there be somebody in Northern California that loves philanthropy that would get fired up about Cornell's mission? And I know you've got some folks that are distributed. So, you know, but it's more reflective of of what if we you know, there are a thousand Cornell grads in India. You know, how do you engage that community when it's historically been about a team in the office? Um, you know, in Ithaca? And, yeah. and are there going to be opportunities both obviously, and, and Fred, we talked about this, you know, the the pursuit of, of material gifts throughout the pandemic via Zoom did not slow you down. It might've even sped you up, um, but but we had no choice at that time. Now we're back to a period of having choice. Mm-hmm. And so what is the future of hybrid and remote work embedding people where our people are, which makes sense for almost no part Of the higher education enterprise, other than advancement, maybe.
1: No, I think it's very different. I mean, my my view has changed a lot. I'm I'm actually a a, a proponent of flexible work. Come to the office when you need to. Go to the doctor if you need to. Take care of your kids. You know, I'm over the you know nine to five whatever thing that we used to do, and I think that's really good. And I just had an onboarding session. I I meet with new employees. We had twenty of them two days ago, and there was one from. Boulder and one from Pennsylvania and one from I think you know southern states I can't remember either but it's pretty extraordinary but I also think one of our challenges is we are part of a magical physical residential community we are not selling something to anyone anywhere we are part of something really special and I think you know being able to be here and even though the most of our team works in in downtown Ithaca. Being here, walking on campus, seeing the students, uh, going to a class, feeling the vibe, getting the energy, being here, that is so inspiring. And if you're almost never on campus, I think you just miss a lot. Uh, no so doubt. it's a real interesting challenge for us. And we'll figure it out.
0: And we've got to figure out, you know, what is the right, because, you know, from where I sit, we're, there's no going back for us. And so it's really what is the right mix of in-person experiences? Is it quarterly Um, for certain teams? Is it monthly? Is it, you know, once a year as a whole group? And, and, you know, we used to spend about $7,000 per teammate um, on real estate uh, when we were in Boston per year, for example. And so you take that 7,000, I don't think it, you know, the, the end of this story is not in great news. We banked seven thousand dollars per person. It's we've now reallocated that seven thousand dollars into a mix of you know in person experiences and and hopefully that helps. Um,
1: yeah,
0: I think the, that
1: the truth on this is no one knows where this is going, right? I mean, I sit with my closest friends who have similar jobs, and we talk about this, and no one knows. And we're experimenting. The exciting thing is. We're doing things differently than we ever would have imagined three or four years ago, and they're productive. And um, and I think it's stretched us. And you know, we we're encouraging people to, to spend half of the fundraisers, half of your time try to be in person with folks to just understand what the right balance is. What are the times when you should be together? Uh, with someone, you know, when you're, maybe when you're meeting someone for the first time, or you're trying to close a gift, or or there's a difficult situation. I mean, having some guidelines, um, because I, I just think, I just find the, the in-person experience is really rich and different in a way than, than the remote is. So having a, a, a good balance um, is great. It's a green thing. It's a time thing. We can engage different people that we haven't in the process. So I think it's all Really good. And I think trusting staff to say you can guide your work days, but we do need you to, you know, be on campus or in, in meetings with people, you know, at certain times. And I think that's all really positive. So I, I think in the main it's a good thing. But wow, where where we're gonna be, I mean, we're talking about space, leases coming up, and how much space do we need? And we have to do this in our New York City office. And wow, I don't feel like my crystal ball is very
0: clear. Well, luckily, Catherine's is. Catherine, what do you think?
2: Well, I'm you, in a very you,
0: yeah. I mean, you're in a you know new community now, but you were at Columbia pre-pandemic, during the pandemic. Yes. You've launched your own sort of digital platform during that time, and and I think um, you know have built your brand right, have built relationships without without even a Zoom call, right? Just with people. Listening to you um, and and kind of getting to know you know how you think and so forth. So I am I'm cu- curious, sort of, given your community that you've built, what what are you hearing and feeling on this topic?
2: Well, this is a hot take, but I went from a very flexible situation into a role that was in person every day. I made that decision in 2021, a year ago, and I'm. It was a very personal decision. I know myself and I know that I need that stimulation and that in-person experience. I was at a stage in my career where I wanted to be managing and I wouldn't know where to begin managing via Zoom. And so I made that decision and now I'm in person about four days a week. Part of it is because it's an independent school where the parents are in the school every day and the schools open every day. So we need to mirror that culture. And I'm glad that I did because I think it's it's been a good thing for me. Um, but I think outside of my personal experience, this idea of flexibility is paramount. And I think that all frontline fundraisers need to be able to confidently conduct a Zoom discovery visit and an in-person discovery visit and be able to do both and be conversant in both. They take slightly different skills, but I think that's just the reality.
0: And what do you think is the number one, maybe uh, missed opportunity or sort of missed understand, misunderstood um, strategy or tactic as it relates to the Zoom discovery versus the in-person? What's different?
2: What's different is the sensory experience of seeing, is their desk covered in papers or is it crystal clean? Is it are they a little bit awkward when you walk in? All of those little in between moments are missed on Zoom. What's on their wall? Um, is their phone? They have a
1: Jackson Decooning on the wall. I mean, yeah, or Pollock.
2: They're me. probably not going to put that behind them, but they might. I mean, I think that it's it's all the in betweens. It's meeting the the person who is there maybe their calendar keeper and and making that connection in person with them. It's so great to finally meet you. Thank you for making this happen. Those things are important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And look, I think that we're going to, we're going to, we're all experiencing, you know, maybe it's that earlier stage qualification uh, can be more front loaded digitally that we're not, you know, always jump in to Ithaca International Airport for the first time that we're going to meet somebody, <laughs> but the the second or the third time. And um, you know, that being said, I'm sure well, you know, we, we have to keep in mind that right, donors are people and people are adjusting to doing things uh, you know, virtually that that they wouldn't have in the past, from you know, buying a car to closing a house and you know, everything in, in between and mm-hmm. philanthropy is just another, you know, part of that kind of financial, you know, pie, if you will. And, and so, you know, Fred, I, I would love just some of the reflections, even, you know, cause you're, you're one of the people, like you can only be so many places at once and you deal with a lot of your peers as it relates to stewardship and creating great donor experiences where your peers can only be so many places at once and pre-pandemic to get time with the dean or the president or whomever to spend some time with a certain donor i'm sure it was a logistical you know nightmare um and, and i'm sure it still is to a certain extent today but any i don't know memories or moments where yeah. maybe just like the simplicity of everybody being a zoom link away created some pretty memorable donor experiences that just wouldn't have been possible otherwise
1: well i think it's just it's the the timeline in which you can do things it's, well when am I going to be in Tahoe? And when are you going to be in Tahoe? And that could be nine months from now. But when can we get on the Zoom together? Well, that can be next week. Or, gee, there are three faculty members I'd love you to meet. And how are we going to, with their, with their research or, or their class schedules, how are we going to get them? We can get them on a Zoom. So I think we, we did really accelerate a lot of conversations because scheduling is just that much easier. And then bringing in people you wanted to bring in. Was that much easier? So I think that worked. That worked enormously well, um, and 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 that will continue. I mean, I think you know all these tools. We are trying to you know we want to embrace what's the best of the best, no matter where it comes from, um, but also retain the human as much of the human part of our work as possible. Um, and I think honestly. And I love being with you on Zoom, but we're all still really tired of these boxes. I mean, even if we do it less, it really gets old.
0: Well, luckily for Fred, we've only got a few minutes left in this conversation.
1: <laughs> that was not a cue.
0: <laughs> well, either way, we've only got five minutes left. Uh, and so with that, uh, with that time, I might just ask, um, I'll, I'll start with Fred, because you've already referenced 67 open positions. Uh, we have at least 67 listeners, so that's, that's good. Um, but, uh, but tell me just about what's going on at Cornell, why folks should go check out the job page, um, and what you're excited about, because I know you really think highly of the team and believe deeply in the mission, um, and, and you all are, are uh, doing, uh, I think, really inspiring work uh, within the landscape of, av- of advancement.
1: Thank you. Uh, well, Cornell is an extraordinary institution. I mean, it it um, it's the best combines the best of of the liberal arts with the best of um, applied work with the best of engagement in the world. I mean, we really are the model of what a twenty first century university should be because of our commitment to um, to our state and our country and our world. And I think that 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 we really stand out for that. And it's very exciting. And you know, you can the people who are the experts on from apples to quantum mechanics to uh, curing disease. I mean, it's all here at Cornell. It's very exciting. And we have a team that uh, we are really committed to having a, a great culture and giving people the opportunity to grow and do their best work at Cornell. Um, and and lots of excitement. We're in the midst of a campaign that's that's been very successful and trying to do new and different things. So we are really eager to have uh, talented people um, raise their hand and, and reach out. And, and we're really interested in, in being open and creative to people with all kinds of backgrounds, too. We'd, we'd like to have a really wide and, and um, diverse team.
0: Well said, Catherine, other end of the spectrum, you know, New York City, small office, uh, but big aspirations uh, at Chapin for sure. Um, what should folks know about, about Chapin in general and also how to? be in touch with you more broadly.
2: I would say Chapin is a jewel box. I think that's the best way to describe it. It's old, but also up to date with everything happening in today's world. It is a single sex experience. It's all girls K through 12, and that's becoming increasingly rare. The dedication that the staff has to the student experience is amazing and I get to see it every single day whether it's in the lunchroom or walking through the halls it's truly a special place I absolutely love my boss Marita Altman who came to us from the New York Philharmonic there's a real sense of understanding New York City philanthropy from a lot of different angles and I really enjoy that so if there's any interest in The New York City market, or just getting a handle on the way philanthropy works for people from different lenses. And I use, I don't usually use the word philanthropy, but I feel like that word is appropriate in this setting. Um, This would be the right place for you. So, we also have an opening, and that would be reporting to me. It's in prospect management, and um, we are in our silent phases of a campaign. So, if there's any interest, please do reach out LinkedIn at devdebrief on Instagram. Um, I'm sure Brent will put our emails in the notes. So, we would love to hear from
0: you. Well, it's really been a pleasure to get to know both of you over the last couple of years, and to have all the uh, uh, you know intersection in our in our paths here. It's it's a lot of fun, and to all of our listeners, you know, get to know uh, this 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 team, this family. Uh, we've got 68 combined positions. I think it's 68 years of, of, of fundraising, but I guess it doesn't add up. I don't know. I mean, probably, probably more than that, uh, depending on how you count it. But um, it, uh, no, it's been really fun to get to know you both. Thank you for your time, and and wish you the absolute best. Uh, and so, with that, uh, Brent here signing off for today's episode. Thank you both. I really, really appreciate Thank it. You. Uh, Take care. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
2: Bye.